The following audio is from a sermon series entitled Built for Glory, Meeting God and Finding Freedom Through the Book of Exodus. For more information about Sacred City Church, please visit sacredcitychurch.com. Hear the word of the Lord from Exodus 31, verses 1 through 11 and verse 18. The Lord said to Moses, See, I have called by name Bezalel, the son of Uri, son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah, and I have filled him with the Spirit of God, with ability and intelligence, with knowledge and all craftsmanship, to devise artistic designs, to work in gold, silver, and bronze, in cutting stones for setting, and in carving wood, to work in every craft. And behold, I have appointed with him Oholiab, the son of Ahisamach, of the tribe of Dan. And I have given to all able men ability, that they may make all that I have commanded you the tent of meeting, and the ark of the testimony, and the mercy seed that is on it, and all the furnishings of the tent, the table and its utensils, and the pure lampstand with all its utensils, and the altar of incense, and the altar of burnt offering with all its utensils, and the basin and its stand, and the finely worked garments, the holy garments for Aaron the priest, and the garments of his sons, for their service as priests and the anointing oil, and the fragrant incense for the holy place. According to all that I have commanded you, they shall do. And he gave to Moses, when he had finished speaking with him on Mount Sinai, the two tablets of the testimony, tablets of stone, written with the finger of God. This is the word of the Lord. All right, well, I think I'm going to do something this morning that I'm pretty sure I have never done before at Sacred City. Uh, I'm going to teach a how-to sermon, okay? Now, I don't do that very often. I don't honestly put too much weight in pragmatics and being very practical on a Sunday morning um, because we live on the internet age, right? You can just Google most things. You could even put gospel-centered in front of most things and you could find out information on it. Gospel Coalition, Desiring God. There's great blogs out there that can give you all kind of content uh, for that. And so my, go- my job most of the time on Sunday morning is to give you a big picture of God and a big picture of Jesus and kind of shine a a spotlight, kind of take our eyes kind of off ourself and our troubles and our worries and put it on Jesus. And that kind of straightens us out uh, in a lot of the ways when we get a good picture of God. But this morning, I do want to do something different. And basically, um, I'm going to talk about how, this is weird, how to succeed or how to be great at work, how to succeed or how to be great at work, how to be great at what you do. Now, all of this is going to come from our text in Exodus this morning, but I'm going to be honest, it's going to take us a little while to get there. It's, a, it's going to be different. And you've heard uh, Ben say a few times, and if you've been around here for a long time, you know, from the very beginning of Sacred City, we have said that our purpose is threefold. We're called to make disciples. That's what Jesus commanded us to do. We're called, as those disciples are made, we form missional communities. And as more missional communities are formed, we do what? We plant churches. Uh, We talked about it for five years. And then this last year, we got to do that. We planted a church in Moline, and we're thankful to God. We we take 10% of all of your giving, all of the money that comes into Sacred City, 10% of our giving goes to church planting. 3% of it goes to Joshua and church planting in Kenya. 7% goes uh, to church planting here in the United States. 
And so our, our, what we want to do here is make disciples, plant churches, and here's the third one, renew the city. And that might be new for you. Many of us probably never grew up with, if you grew up in church, you probably didn't hear much about the city. You probably didn't have any, hear any talk about the city except for maybe condemning talk. Uh, we want to stay away from the city. Let's get out in the burbs as fast as we can or out in the rural part as fast as we can. The city's where bad stuff happens. But what we see in the gospel is that God is a spiritual tornado, that he sucks us in and he changes us from the inside out and then he sends us back out into the world to live in a distinct way in our cities that bring him glory and it brings about kind of it maximizes the term that philosophers like to call, like, like to use human flourishing. Human flourishing is what's good for mankind, that we want mankind to flourish. God wants mankind to flourish. Like really, we talk a lot about that's what the Ten Commandments were all about as we work through that. But I wonder, so make disciples, plant churches, renew the city. It's kind of the mission of God. I wonder if you know how your work fits into that. And by work, I mean whatever it is that you spend, well, I was going to say whatever it is that you spend the majority of the day doing. But if that's video games, then that's not what I'm talking about. Okay. Productive work. Okay. Productive work for the good of humanity, whether it's just being a mother at home, whether it's, uh, you know, making great things, whether it's leading people, whatever your job is, whatever your career is, do you know how your work your career fits into the mission of God in this world. Well, that's what we're going to talk about today. And I think it's important because as I meet with more and more people, and as I come to just understand our city and understand our world in a greater way, I find that more and more people are living radically disintegrated lives, disintegrated lives. They have their work life, they have their social life. They have their political affiliations. They have their school friends. And then they have their spiritual life. But these things rarely intersect. Even when it comes to just our friendships, we have work friends and school friends and church friends. And these things don't come together very often. And this is not a healthy way to live. And yet many people, this is all they've known. This is how they've grown up. This is what they think is right. This is how they think their life should be. That we are to compartmentalize, compartmentalize our lives and keep the secular, and the secular and the sacred separate. Now, what this line of thinking does, first of all, I'm going to just let you know, it's not biblical, Okay. But what this line of thinking does is it creates a clear dichotomy between my spiritual life and my work life or my everyday life. And that we literally become a disintegrated person. And we attempt to shut off our spiritual lives as we go to work or as we wake up to serve in the morning and to work in the morning and to be moms and dads and to live our day-to-day -day life. We have our spiritual life and we have our regular life. And it's interesting to me that the word integrity, the word integrity literally means the state of being whole 
and undivided. So to be an integri- a person with integrity, to be an integrous person means that everything is united. Everything's under one bit. We don't have our lives compartmentalized into different sections. We are integrated into one collective whole. Now, what's so bad about being disintegrated? Well, for one, God is spirit, okay? God is spirit. If you catechize your kids, one of the questions, what is God? God is a spirit. God is spiritual. And that means in order for us to know him, hear this, we must know him spiritually. So just think about that, what what that means if you're the type of person who wants to keep spiritual matters isolated into their own little category, That means God can only influence you in the tiny part of your life that you deem to be spiritual. So God, the creator of all things, has one hour on Sunday morning to get your attention, speak to you, and do something meaningful in your life. Now, just statistically speaking, this creates very low odds for God to ever really impact you in a deep and meaningful way. Plus, it puts a lot of pressure on me. Let's just say that. Right? Like, I got one hour every week that I got to make you see Jesus, or I got to do something where, you know, you walk out of here going, wow, God just showed up, or that was amazing. Now, listen, can you just imagine if your relationship with your spouse or your future spouse was like that? All week long, you live completely separate lives, and then you come together on Sunday morning for a couple hours, right? You'd spend the majority of the time probably trying to catch up on what happened that week, right? And you, you wouldn't have time to really create a relationship of substance. You'd be always kind of playing in the relational kiddie pool, See, a meaningful relationship is built upon integration, that I take my whole life and I integrate it with my wife, Amanda, and we live all of our lives together. We walk and talk and work and live together, weathering each season that life brings our way. We, ha- we fight, right? We disagree, and she repents, and then we reconcile. <laughs> Maybe not. No. We have to repent towards one another, right? We work through our issues. Yeah, I just check and see if you're awake, all right? We work through our issues, and we grow together over a long period of time, becoming more and more integrated over time. There's a long joke that the longer people are married together, the more they start to look alike, right? It just starts to happen. We get more and more integrated. Now, listen, this is how real intimacy, for by and large, our, our world knows nothing about this. This is how real, lifelong intimacy and depth is created. It comes through integration. And in the same way, the integrated person, the person who sees, listen, all of their life as open to God and spiritual, everything is spiritual. That person is able to have a relationship with God that has real intimacy and depth. We don't just quarantine him to Sunday morning or quiet time with God. 
We say, no, 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 my whole life is spiritual. I am a spiritual person. And God can impact and speak into and move around and and maneuver every area of my life, not just what I deem to be spiritual. And what this this creates, there's a, uh, I just think this came to my mind. I think his name, Brother Lawrence wrote a book uh, called Practicing the Presence of the, is that his name? Of, Of the Spirit of God. Just learning to live every day open to God. And what this does, for those of us who learn this, What it does is it gives us resources that nobody else has. I'm just going to say that. When people who have integrated their whole life, spiritually speaking, with God, the integrated person, when they go through something really difficult, they are able to kind of drill down deep into this well of resources that God has given them and bring it up, bring up the resources that God has given us through the gospel and through the spirit. And they're able to weather the storms of life, weather the difficult things that come into our life on a day-to-day basis. Now, again, I said, this is going to be practical. It's going to be how to, and so I want to give us some real clear examples on what's that, what that looks like. See, The gospel of Jesus Christ and the gospel is the good news of what Jesus has done, what Jesus is doing, and what Jesus will do to redeem and restore all things for his glory. Okay? That's what the the gospel is. And the gospel tells us that we are actually, no matter how we feel, we are more broken and more sinful than we think. That if someone ever points out your sin, it should never surprise you because you're more of a sinner than you think you are. That we really screw up and we sin against God far more than we ever realize. In fact, we won't know until we get to heaven how big of a screw up we actually have been on this earth, right? And for all of that, we deserve judgment. We deserve his wrath. We've sinned against him and we've sinned against other people. But the gospel kind of paradoxically also says that because of Jesus vicariously living a perfect life that we failed to live and dying on the cross that we deserve as our substitute, we are also, listen, so the gospel says we're worse than we thought, but it also says we're far more loved, far more wanted, far more desired, far more cherished and accepted than we could ever even dare to dream. We've never loved someone like God loves us. We've never accepted someone like God has accepted us. We've never cherished someone, sorry moms, as much as God cherishes us. We haven't. He is love. He's the perfect lover. Even in our brokenness, even in our sinfulness, he loves us like this. And listen, this is what the the Bible says, that message I just shared with you, it's the snapshot of the gospel. He says, that's a spiritual message. Listen, there's two types of people in this room this morning. There's natural people and there's spiritual people. For the natural man, he cannot accept the message of the gospel. See, the message of the gospel smells like death. 
to the natural person, dying to our flesh, dying to our wants and our wishes, not worrying about what other people think, but for the spiritual person, the person that God has moved in and God has changed, the gospel is good news. The gospel is beautiful, that God loves a broken sinner like me and God has redeemed me. God is making me new and God is restoring all of creation and God has something great for me to do on this earth. See, then the message of the gospel cannot be accepted by the natural man, but for the spiritual person, for the spiritual person who receives the spiritual message from a spiritual God, it has amazing, positive benefits in our lives. See, the spiritual person has learned how to integrate their lives in such a way that the spiritual gospel message makes an everyday impact when I go to work, when the baby wakes me up at 2 a.m. or 3 in the afternoon, right? The spiritual person who's learned how to integrate the message of the gospel has great resources. Now, listen, can I just say, before I jump into getting really practical on how this works, what use is a spirituality that you can only use half the day. What's the use? If your spiritual life doesn't inform and empower your work life, your home life, your gym life, all the other parts of your life, it's worthless. Now on the flip side of this, think about this. The integrated Christian has resources at their disposal that no one else on earth has. That we can tap into a power, and it's a personal power connected to God himself, that other people can't. And this is meant to be a great help for us in our day-to-day life, every single day, even at work. But here's how this works. Because the gospel tells me that I am simultaneously sinful and loved, I don't have to be surprised when I fail. When I yell at the kids. When I'm rude to my coworkers. When I bomb, when I'm trying to sell something, I just bomb it, right? When I fail a project, when I, you know, I I just flat out fail. When I fail a class. Because the gospel tells me I'm simultaneously sinful and loved, I don't have to be surprised when I fail. So when a person at work points out one of my failures or a person at home, I can own it without trying to justify it, without getting defensive and trying to explain it away. And what really happened was, and what you don't understand is, you know what, I'm really going through a different, and we just try to explain it away instead of just saying, yep, you know what, I screwed up. I failed. See, I, when I'm believing the gospel, when I'm tapping into the spiritual power, I can say, I see your point. I've messed up. The person who can't admit they, admit they messed up will never receive the gospel because the gospel begins with, I've messed up. I've sinned against God. And when a person at work tells me that, come on now, this is nothing I haven't heard before. You're not pointing out, he's not pointing out anything that I already don't know. 
Jesus has already told me I'm a screw up and I need his grace. He's already told me that. That's why he had to die. But Jesus has also told me phenomenally that he loves me in the midst of my screw up. He adopted me in full knowledge of my failures and that he's, let's think about that. Jesus went to the adoption agency and you were laying there and, and it, he went through all of the ones that were like, you know, this one, this one comes from great stock, right? This one had Olympian parents. This one, I mean, his parents, their parents were scholars. This one, this one, you know, he's got all kind of health issues. He's, all, he's never going to live a full life. He's not cognitively there. He's got all the, and Jesus says, yep, that's the one I want. Now, we don't really want to be that one, right? Because we have to admit that there's something wrong with us. But there's freedom in saying, listen, you didn't bring anything to the table. God didn't look at you and go, oh, this is the one, my future Olympian. This is the one. He looked at you and you were dead in your trespasses and sins. And he said, I choose this one and I'm going to love it in such a way that I love it into life. And I'm going to fill it with my spirit. And I'm going to give them resources that can help them grow and change and do something significant in the world. Jesus, through the gospel, has given us a way for us to be forgiven and also empowered to grow and change. So when I'm living an integrated life, my failures don't crush me at work. Now, I, I, you, I could get, hopefully I don't have to get too specific here. I remember one time, a man and I, uh, when you're first, you know, we're, we're raising kids and you, you, you know, you, you never know what they're going to do. And I remember one morning um, waking up and my daughter was like two or three at the time and she had woken up unlocked the door and went outside to play with her babies. And I get up, you know, I get up, I think I get up and I look and she's like, across, she's across the street in the neighbor's yard, like chasing a dog. Now you do not come back in and feel like an awesome parent after that, <laughs> right? Like I need an HCTV show. We're crushing the game over here, right? You feel like a complete idiot. You feel like a complete failure, right? Now, what do you do in those moments? Do you beat yourself up over it? Huh? I can't believe I did this, right? What do you do when you fail at work? Do you beat yourself up? If you grew up as an athlete, I know that's what you do because that's what your coach does. Shamed you, made you feel stupid, right? Told you to suck it up, told you to do better, right? And so what do we do when we, when we mess up in life? We say the same thing our coach told us, suck it up, do better, try harder. Don't be an idiot. That shouldn't have happened to you. That's the anti-gospel message. But that's not all. This also means that we don't let our successes at work go to our head and make us proud. Listen, you might wake up every morning and walk to your wall and look at your degree. Hmm. That's right. I got letters in front of my name. Everything we have. That's what the gospel tells us. Everything we have, we have because God gave it 
to us. If I, I can't, I've been reading a book and I, I'm, I'm quoting stuff off the top of my head. So we have like a million something letters in our DNA, right? When they map it. If one of those is off, you don't have that degree. Were you in your mother's womb choosing your DNA sequence? Did you do that? Huh? Did you do that? That's a gift of grace. Therefore, that thing that hangs on your wall is not screaming, you are awesome. You are great. Look what you accomplished. It's saying, look how gracious my God is. We don't deserve any of it. In fact, we've already said we deserve God's judgment, God's wrath, but he has been gracious. That means our intellect, our inner disposition, the fact that you love to work hard and you love to put in the hours, that inner disposition, that your station in life has all been uniquely crafted by God to create the person that you are. So the integrated person who has learned how to use the spiritual resources found in the gospel at work, doesn't let success go to their head and doesn't let failure go to their heart. They're far more resilient than the average workers because they have a spiritual power that others don't in the gospel. That's not all. Think about this. So much of our stress in life is surrounding this issue of work. And so much of our temptation to overwork, our inability to have meaningful relationships at work, that we get frustrated with our coworkers and we get frustrated with our boss. So much of it is really, if you get down to it, if you dig down inside, it's really over the desire to please people. We just want somebody to tell us we're doing a good job. And the problem is, everybody's like that. So if everybody's walking around wanting other people to tell them to do a good job, nobody's going to tell anybody to give it, you're doing a good job because we all need it. We're all like over desiring that. You know what I mean? And so the, the problem is when we want our boss's approval and we want our coworkers approval that we are desperately wanting to be approved of and we are willing to do what? We're willing to overwork we're willing to overstress to get it. We're willing to cut off our employees and bite and devour them in a sense to get ahead at work. But in the gospel, we learn that, listen, God has already given us his full approval through Jesus. So when I'm tempted at work to overpromise, sure, I can do that. Sure, I can come in this weekend. Sure, I can take on one more project. When I'm tempted to overwork, I can draw on the power of the gospel and say, you know what? I'm sorry. I would love to do that, but I can't do that this week. And I can, I can do that because, listen, the acceptance of Jesus means more to me in the moment than the acceptance I'm seeking from the person at work. I'm drawing up the resources of the gospel and I'm feeling accepted by God because of the work of Jesus and therefore I don't have to earn that person's approval. This is remarkably powerful day in and day out. But there's even more and I could go on all day like this. What about when we're lacking motivation? 
We don't want to get up out of bed. We don't know what to do with our life. The gospel is also the greatest motivator in the world. Listen, money isn't a great motivator. Fear of failure isn't a great motivator. The gospel is the best. It's the greatest motivator. For when I think about the gospel and I can kind of drop my bucket down into the well of the gospel and I can pull up some resources there that get me out of bed and fire me up for that day. Listen, God tells us tomorrow is promised to no man. He also tells us every morning, new mercies come to those who are in Christ. And so when I wake up, if I wake up, that's a gift of God. And that means God has resources available for me that day. It means he's got something planned for me. It means he's got people for me to love, people for me to meet, people for me to share the gospel with. He's got good work for me to do to bless the city and bless the world. That when you wake up every single morning, that's God's stamp of approval telling you, you have purpose today. Get after it. Get after it. No, you ain't got time to hit the snooze alarm. Get up and get after it. These are just a few ways that the spiritually integrated Christian has a real power that other people don't. So, now how, okay, that hopefully I built up, well, hopefully you say, well, I want that. Well, I, I need that, right? How do we integrate our spiritual life at work? How do we do that? Or another way to say it is, what does God have to do with my career? Well, Exodus 31, 1 through 11 shows us at least three things this morning. So open up your Bible. Let's take a look there. It's a very unique text. I'll be honest. When I went through the entire book of Exodus and I plotted out how I was going to preach through this, this sermon stood out to me. It was one of the most unique instances, I think, in, the, in all the scriptures. It's a special scripture. It's meant to inform us. I don't get to talk about this stuff very often, and so I'm pretty excited this morning. Chapter 31, verse 1. Moses up in the glory cloud, if you remember. The Lord said to Moses, See, I have called by name Bezalel, the son of Uri, the son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah, and I have filled him with the spirit of God, with ability and intelligence, with knowledge and all craftsmanship to devise artistic designs, to work in gold, silver, and bronze, and cutting stones for setting, in carving wood, to work in every craft. And behold, I have appointed with him Man, I wish I could say it like Danielle said it. A holy, I can't say it like that. The son of Ahasmach, all right, of the tribe of Dan. And look, look, look. And I have given to all able men and women ability, ability that they may make all that I have commanded you. Okay, now we're going to learn three things from this text right now. I'm going to give it to you and then we'll break it down. One, your work Your career is a calling from God. Two, your calling is meant to be supernatural. Three, your supernatural... I see people trying to write this down. Don't try to do that. Your supernatural gifts are for the glory of God 
and the good of mankind. Okay, that's where we're going. And we're going to dive into these points really quickly. First, your point, your point, your work is a calling. Look at Exodus 31, 2. See, I have called by name Bezalel, the son of Uri, the son of Hira, the tribe of Judah. And I, so right there, listen, this word calling, Bezalel is called to be an artist and a craftsman. Now, somewhere along the lines in the past hundred years, we've lost this idea of calling. The word vocation, uh, man, I can't talk today. The word vocation, vocation, voca, that means to call. That means to call, that the Latin word voca means to call. So we say, what is your vocation? That means, what are you called to do? What this means is in our world, every ethical, virtuous vocation is itself a calling. In Exodus so far, we've seen God call Moses to be his prophet and priest. We've seen God call men to be elders in Israel and lead the people and judge the people of Israel. But here, listen to this. God's vocational calling isn't just relegated to the so-called spiritual professions. Everybody thinks if you get called by God, you're called into the ministry. You're called to be a preacher. You're called to be a pastor. Here, God in the Old Testament is calling artisans, seamstresses, carpenters, jewelsmiths, and all types of artists and craftsmen. These are all professions that are good and meant to bring him glory. Now, what that means for us, listen, is your work, your career is meant to be your calling, something you're called to do. One of my favorite novels right now is Jaber Crow by Wendell Berry. And in that novel, Jaber, he grows up and he thinks that he's called into the ministry, but he, as he goes through seminary and he's learning, he, what he realizes is he's actually called to be a barber. And he lives his life as a barber, and he, flir- he lear- li- kind of brings about human flourishing. He creates this great barber shop in town. And the whole novel is really about this guy who's figured out his calling, who learns how to live in one place and just be a part of a community. It's awesome. It's a fantastic book. But what this means for us is that you have been called by God to be architects, designers, craftsmen, artists, engineers, musicians, authors, barbers, teachers, managers, writers, and if you're a stay-at-home mom, all of those. (laughs) Now, we should know that this isn't new information to the Israelites. I mean, so many people who don't understand that their real everyday life means and matters to God. Their profession matters to God. But the Israelites knew this. They knew what we call the cultural mandate. Genesis 1.28, God says, when he creates Adam and Eve, he says, be fruitful and multiply. We get that part. Make babies. We like to do it. We're celebrating that, that this morning. But there's an ex- another part of that cultural mandate. 
Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Subdue the earth before the fall. That God blessed them and told them, make babies, build families and subdue creation. What does it mean to subdue creation? You get a sense of it every time you mow your lawn. You are subduing your lawn. You are bringing order out of chaos, right? You were losing children in your lawn, <laughs> right? Pheasants were flying out of it, and you had said, all right, it's time to mow. I need to get out there and subdue creation. <clears throat> You're bringing order out of chaos. But listen, it means more than that. Listen, when God said subdue to creation, he was also saying to take the raw resources that God gives you, the natural resources our world has, that God gives us in nature and make them into good and beautiful things that promote human flourishing for the glory of God. Hear that. I'm going to say it again. Take the raw resources that God gives us in nature and make them into good and beautiful things that promote human flourishing for the glory of God. So when God tells Adam and Eve to subdue creation, he's literally telling them, build cities. Engineer sewage treatment plants. You're going to need them. Create a flourishing healthcare system so everyone can be taken care of. He's telling them in this moment, go to the moon. See that thing up there that reflects the glory of the sun? Go to that thing, the moon. Go there. Build a spaceship that'll take you up there. You're going to get up there? I love it. The first American who set foot on the, on the, earth, or on the moon, you know what he did? He had communion. He had communion. Because no, I bet you nobody gets the glory of God like an astronaut standing on the moon looking around at this little speck of earth that we live on. He says, go to the moon. He says, map, I want you to map the human DNA sequence. That's crazy, but I want you to do it. That's what God was saying when he's saying, subdue creation. God has given us the resources of this world to use to bring him glory and to bring about the maximum human flourishing possible. But for some of us, we struggle to know what we're called to do. What is our calling in life? Well, here, point number two, we see that our calling is meant to be supernatural. Now, I'm using that term in a very specific way that I don't want us to miss. For, let's kind of break that word apart here a bit. First, your calling, I'm just going to use the second part, natural, supernatural. Your calling from God is in line with your natural gifts. Hear me. Your calling from God is in line with your natural gifts. When God calls Bezalel here to make him his chief artisan... God, listen, God is not giving some lazy klutz the supernatural ability to make great things. This isn't like Peter Parker getting bitten by a spider. God is calling a guy who is already an expert and making him better by the spirit of God. God is adding his spirit, his super to Bezalel's natural giftings. That's the super part. Bezalel his career in the arts 
is spiritual and natural. It, it's a spiritual gift that has come from God. We see this in verse 3 where God says, I have called Bezalel and I have filled him with the spirit of God to be the chief artisan. So the calling comes from God. Let's just say that's the super part. It comes from God, but the calling is also in line with Bezalel's natural giftings. That's the natural part. God says he has given him ability and intelligence, knowledge, and craftsmanship. So to find out our, nat- our calling, what God's calling us to do, we need to look, what are the gifts God has given me? What are the natural gifts that I've got? Right? We've all seen the person on the old show, American Idol, who thought they had the gift to sing. <laughs> right? And they get up and like, no, 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 no. Uh-uh, you don't have the gift. But I think many of us walk around and we see gifts from other people and we want that gift and we pray for it. That's not how it works. It's not a buffet. You just choose what you want and ask God for the spirit, right? If, if it was, I'd be leading up here, all right? I'd be leading worship every week and I'd be getting it in, all right? I'm gonna tell you. I wanna be able to sing. Can't sing a lick, not a little bit, not even a little bit. Right? My four-year-old daughter corrects me. Okay? It's bad. We don't get gifted how we want. We get gifted how God has naturally given us these gifts. So God gives us all natural gifts, intelligence, and abilities. And listen, to discover our calling, we have to discover these gifts. You, You discover your gifts. Now listen, this is why I'm just a two-parent Male-female home is so important. For some of you who are struggling to discover your gifts and find out what you're called to do, many of you, many of us come from broken homes where we didn't have a mother and a father working together with an integrated life, looking at us and saying, you're really good at this. You know what? You're not good at that. We're going to work on that a lot. We're going to work on that a lot. We don't want you to be ignorant of it, but you're not good at that. What you're really good, you know what? You're phenomenal with people. You have a heart for people. You're very compassionate. Let's develop that. Let's focus on that. Let's work on some virtues in that area. Or you are amazing at math, right? You know what? The engineering field, you, you start pushing, you, you notice these things. As parents, you start noticing these things. And men, we notice some things. And ladies, you notice other things, Right? A lot of times we're like, men, we're wanting to develop courage. We're like, go climb the tree. Mom's like, I'm like, get to the top of that tree. <laughs> right? We're pushing on our kids in different ways. And then all of a sudden, one day, our kid does something. We're like, they're awesome at that. This is amazing. Like, we discover it. And when parents, you discover it, you're meant to get down in there and fashion it and work on it and put them in some lessons or whatever you have to do to help them develop it. So we discover our gifts with the help of parents and pastors, coaches and teachers, MC family members, MC leaders that look and say, you know what? You're gifted with, with un, like you have a missional gift. You're so good at bringing in outsiders. You make them feel so comfortable and welcoming. You have the gift of hospitality. That's how we develop our natural gifts. But then... After we discover them, we actually have to pursue them. We we need to go to school, right? 
You might, have, you might be great at numbers, but you can't be an accountant if you don't go get your degree, right? You, you got to go do that. So we have to get educated. We have to pursue our, pa- pursue our gifts and with passion and become great at them. Then, then this is interesting. As we pursue these things, as we develop our gifts, as we discover our callings and we work hard at them, then we discover, it's so interesting to me, then kind of when there's going to come a day when our gifts and expertise are needed by God and we'll be ready for him to add, listen, his super to our natural and bless the world in some way. Winston Churchill once said to each, there comes in their lifetime a special moment when they are figuratively tapped on the shoulder and offered the chance to do a very special thing, unique to them and fitted to their talents. What a tragedy if that moment finds them unprepared or unqualified for that which could have been their finest hour. See, Bezalel, he doesn't get bit by a spider here and become an artist. He's been working his craft, right? And then God needs an artist and calls him and anoints him for a special work. So how do we become experts at our callings? we, we need to surround ourselves with people who can look in and say, you're good at this, you're not good at that. We need to be, you know, get some sandpaper people around us that offend us enough to say, listen, American Idol, not so much. Right? Craftsmen, I think maybe. Mm-hmm. Yep. But you can mow the grass. You can mow the grass. Right? Let's, let's, let's start moving in this direction. Maybe landscape artists, that's what we'll work on. Right? But what does it take? You've discovered it. You've seen it. What does it take to become experts at our callings? This piece, honestly, is surprisingly simple. We get educated in them, and we practice them a lot. We get educated in them, and then we practice them a lot. Current experts say that it takes about 10,000 hours of practice to become an expert at anything. 10,000 hours. From cooking, to preaching, to drawing, to mathematics, to sales, to counseling, to parenting, whatever it is. Listen, there is no secret sauce to being great at something. The secret to being great at something is putting in the time, reading the books, watching the videos, getting around the experts, going to school, trying it over and over and over and over and over and over and over until you become an expert at it. Now listen, if that's true, Justin, then why aren't there more experts? Why aren't there more experts? I'm going to give you two reasons why there there aren't more experts. One, the painful reality is Nearly everything you make during those 10,000 hours looks painfully average. Painfully average. Now, I kind of did some math. I've been preaching for 14 years, over 700 sermons, between 10 and 20 hours a week, right? 
more than likely I'm around 7,500 hours working on my craft. Okay. That means you guys still have 20, I still have 2,500 years to go before I preach a good sermon. Okay. 2,500 hours to go before I preach a good sermon. That's probably another 10 years. So when I'm in my forties, look out. (laughs) Give me 10 years for my sweet spot. But that's a, if you do the math, that's a lot of time. It's a lot of time. Those of you who are experts at reading, you can read really fast. You've probably, there's only one way to get good at it, and that's by doing it a lot. Guys, when you watch your favorite baseball team, there's only one way they got there. They got there from throwing a ball at least 10,000 hours minimum. Hitting a ball at least 10,000 hours. And now listen, it was also in line with their calling, in line with their natural gifts, right? If you couldn't run around the bases without tripping over them, you're not called to be a baseball player. I'm sorry. Well, actually, you, never mind. I'm not going to get into this. So, so listen, here's the first reason we quit. Most people give up because their output, whatever it is that they're creating, is just average. I'm just not that good of a preacher. I just can't get my words together. I just can't, I can't draw like that. I can't, this proposal that I'm working on, is just so average. This device that I'm trying to create, it's so average. And so they give up thinking because I'm making average stuff, I must not be called to be great at this thing. And I'll just tell you, everyone is average for the first 10,000 hours or so. And secondly, People give up because in the words of Thomas Edison, opportunity is missed by most people because it's dressed in overalls and looks like work. See, from our perspective, Bezalel became an overnight success. We had never heard of him before this text. And then all of a sudden, God immortalizes him. Can you imagine this? Guys, this artist, not a preacher, not a prophet, this artist, his name is in our Bibles and we're reading it 3,500 years later and talking about him. An artist. You know this guy was broke up until this time. (laughs) Right? Barely can feed his family. Probably got to do something on the side. A lot of times our culture doesn't value the arts, but God does. And we look at this and we read this and we're like, oh man, I want to be an overnight success. I want God to, I used to dream of this when I was like a little kid, right? I could never stay focused on one thing for very long, but I'd be out practicing baseball, throwing it against the side of the house, picking it up, just thinking somebody's watching me. I'm going to get discovered. (laughs) This kid's got amazing gifts. Put him on a stage somewhere, right? It's not how it happens. 10,000 hours of average work. And then maybe you'll be ready. See, what we don't see in this text is the 10 to 20 years of work he put into becoming a great artisan. We don't see how many terrible looking pieces he created. The ones that, you know, mom hung up on the wall, but nobody else would. If Bezalel would have given up and not pursued his passion with determination, then he would have never been ready when God needed an expert artisan. God would have chosen someone else. God still would have got his 
temple. He still would have got his tabernacle. He still would have got the Ark of the Covenant. He still would have got everything he wanted. But this guy's gifts, he wouldn't get the spirit on him and get to use his gifts to bless God, to glorify God, and for the good of others. See, this is what I want for our church. We've got a lot of young folks. We have a lot of young, we have a lot of millennials, young families. And listen, the time is coming when your expertise is going to be needed in some way. God has already got that day planned and it's on its way. But the question is, will you be ready? Will you be the type of person needed for that plan? When the calling comes, will you be the type of person with the gifts mastered that you need to be to answer the calling of God? See, our city needs new nonprofits or more nonprofits. We need more churches. We need city administrators. We are going to need new business owners and new education professionals. And the way our culture is moving as we are kind of slouching towards Gomorrah, this creates a great opportunity for us as Christians to be salt and light in our city. But shoddy work, laziness, goofiness, middle-of-the-road performance will never get the world's attention or God's anointing. See, this is, that's the third point. The third point, your supernatural gifts are given to you to maximize for the glory of God and the good of mankind, the good of our city, the good of our world. We want to give God glory by offering our best to him. And we want to create a better city to live in, a city that begins to reflect God's kingdom in some small way, a city that's more gracious, that's more just, that's more creative, that's more beautiful, that's more virtuous, And all of these things matter to God. Whether you're vacuuming floors or designing buildings, they matter to God and he wants you to glorify him with your gifts for the good of mankind. Now, the last thing as I close that I want to say about this. is the rest of chapter 31 is kind of a repeat. The rest of chapter 31 is another command and another reminder for the people to Sabbath. And it's important that I mention that. Listen, God isn't calling us to make work into an idol. We don't live for our work. We live for God through our work. Some of us need to learn to embrace the grind and set the alarm and wake up and read the book and go to school and practice and work hard and close the Netflix browser and put in the hours. But many more of us need to learn to rest in the finished work of Jesus and Sabbath. See, When you're worshiping God through your work, you take time to worship and rest. And that's what specifically, that's what Sunday's for. 
to get soul rest, to be reminded that your work isn't spinning the, the world on its axis. God's work is. And you rest while he's still working. Now, I'm just going to say it. I think there's a lot of blessings here for the spiritual person who's integrated their life. But all of these blessings and benefits, listen, they're not automatically yours because you go to church. These blessings are for the spiritually integrated person who has learned how to open up their life to God and bring Jesus into every dimension of their life. And you do that rather simply. You invite him in. You say, come in and have all of me. Just like you do with your spouse. You don't try to siphon off portions of your life. You say, you can have all of me. You invite Jesus into your life and ask him to reorient your life towards him and towards his glory. That our eyes are down like this. I heard an analogy this week that we're born like people born into a cellar and it's dark and dingy and there's some paintings on the wall and we're fascinated by the paintings. We spend our lives looking at the glory of the paintings when our eyes were created to see the glory of the noonday sun, to see the glory of the heavens, but we've never been outside. And so we need God to free us and pull the scales of our eyes and come down into that dungeon and pull us out of that dungeon and set us up outside in freedom. And he does that when we ask him, he does that when we say, I'll give you my life. Show me your glory. And of course, that isn't just a one-time decision. It's something you do every morning and every hour of every day. You look to Jesus and you say, my life for yours. Help me walk in the calling that you've placed on me. Help me Love like you love. Help me stand in your righteousness and believe the gospel. Help me give others the grace that you've given me. Help me use the gifts that you've given me to bless others. This is what it means to make disciples, plant churches, and renew the city. We all have a part to play. Let me pray. Father, it's a great reminder even for me that you are creative, that you value creativity, you value our work. That we're not meant to have this Gnostic understanding of our lives that they're sacred and they're secular and these things are separated but as Hebrews 4.13 says all of our life is uncovered and laid bare before the God to whom we must give account all of our life is meant to be sacred and lived for you for your glory and for our joy and I pray this morning that um you would kind of put that sacred stamp, that spiritual stamp of approval 
on the careers and the calling that you've placed in your people and those who are young and still trying to figure that out. They're in college, they're in high school, they're just get out of college and they're trying to figure out what you've called them, that you'd put people around them to help shape them, to help point them, to help say, to just direct their mind what they're good at. And Father, you would, through the power of the gospel, give them that determination, that drive, that motivation to build great things, to do great work, to love greatly for your glory and the good of our city. Father, of course, this is only possible because Jesus lived the perfect life that we don't. Jesus knew his calling. Jesus embraced his gifts. Jesus lived it out perfectly, never failed. And when he was about 30 years old or 33 years old, when the time come, Time came for you to call him to fulfill this moment. Jesus, of course, was ready. He struggled in the garden. He said, oh, you know, not my will, but your will be done. If it's possible, take this cup from me. But Jesus had determination. He had the grit to go to the cross. When his moment came, he was the man who could answer the call. And we're thankful that he answered the call on our behalf when we fail when we miss it, when we flop. And Father, by faith, the righteousness of Jesus can be counted as ours. We can stand loved, forgiven, accepted, empowered, forgiven in the righteousness of Christ because of his life, death, resurrection, and ascension. And now we come to your table to take that into us, to receive the body that reminds us we've been chosen, we've been saved, we've been redeemed, and the blood that speaks a better word says you're righteous, you're cleansed, you're forgiven, you're loved, you're accepted, you're adopted. We take that into us. Let it be a sign and a seal for us this morning. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen.